the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Welcome to the Forward Together podcast of Hollywell Trust. My name is Jared Dean and I'm joined as always by Paul Gosling. Hi Jared. Paul, this month our continuing conversation, you met with Colin McFeely. Yeah, Colin is an interesting guy. He's the chief executive of Cricket Enterprises and the Rathmore Centre and a well-known uh, community facilitator. And anyone listening from parts of Northern Ireland that aren't Derry, Londonderry, will perhaps not be aware of what Craig and Enterprises is. It's mm. um, a multi-purpose retail um, and business centre, uh, employs about 300 people on the site, and it's yeah. a not-for-profit initiative. Very, very impressive business. Yeah, I think it's one of the biggest social enterprises in Northern Ireland, I would uh, say. So, Yeah, absolutely, yes. Yeah, so an, an important voice within the community here. Um, and he starts off by talking about the fact that we need to learn from past political mistakes, otherwise we risk, the, risk repeating them. Absolutely. Um, and Connell is very strong about this, yes. Uh, you know, we are at risk of... I think he's almost saying that we are entering a process of repeating past political mistakes, and mm. those political mistakes led to the troubles, they led to the civil rights demands, um, but we're failing to learn from history and we have a structure of inequality within our society. And he points specifically also to the fact that things that people expected to come out of the Good Friday Agreement, such as the Bill of Rights, have not been delivered. And mm. clearly there is a feeling amongst parts of society, particularly amongst, I think, nationalist and Republican society, that they have not received what they expected out of the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, I think he was calling for all partners they honour agreements and in particular the British government they honour their part on this And but he also talked about as you would expect from Connolly talked about economic investment and the fact that it needs to reach the most marginalised communities here Yeah which is in a sense a continuation of the same point that he's saying that you know the past political mistake was that wasn't equality within society and he's saying well we've now got new structures of inequality but to actually you also have the people that were most affected that were most disadvantaged had the least equality within the troubles are mm. still broadly the same parts of society that are outside of the, the any benefits are of wealth creation within Northern Ireland today and he's saying well we need social transformation uh, because we have the same losers as ever and that that social transformation needs to be you know multifactorial if you like you know economic cultural educational environment or transformation you know we need to be across all parts but also the other thing which I think is making a very, as a very strong point is that we need to look as Northern Ireland as being beyond nationalism and unionism. Yeah. You know, there are large parts of societies, and we've seen this in the recent votes as well, you know, the large parts of society that can't be classified as either nationalist or unionist because we have an increasingly diverse society. Perhaps it's not yet truly multicultural, but it is more diverse than it's been in the past. OK, well, let's hear from Connell now. I'm joined now by Conor McFeely, the Chief Executive of the uh, Craig and Enterprises and the Rathmore Centre. Conor, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to be interviewed. Uh, I want to head straight off into the question, how do we strengthen civil society in ways that enable us to make progress? Right. Uh, firstly, as a society that is still emerging from conflict, I think we must collectively not allow ourselves uh, to make the same political mistakes and failure of governance that we've done in the past. Uh, and in that regard, I think um, we should not allow those mistakes 
uh, there was political failures um, to be repeated. But sadly, I believe that we are at the moment. Um, Which political mistakes do you mean specifically? Well, again, is that I think it, you know one has to look at the history of the, the what gave rise to the conflict here. Um, it was in terms of the, the impact of partition, um, the fact that then we had a system of governance um, that clearly denied people uh, equality of opportunity, and that in itself gave birth to the the civil rights movement. And then when we actually seen then how government and government initiatives then responded to that, um, that in many ways uh, led to um, the conflict. We know in this particular city, we know about the decision of Bloody Sunday, for example, um, how that was obviously uh, decided, um, how it was executed on the day, and then how it impacted in this particular city. That in many ways obviously gave rise to the conflict, given the fact that people were denied um, equality of opportunity, um, instead of obviously people looking at the need for obviously, you know, creating a, an equal society. Clearly, if that had been dealt with way back at the beginning of the process, we might not have had the conflict. I would see that as a, a, a failure of governance. So and, you're and talking that, about the political mistakes going back to the past rather than the ones since the Good Friday Agreement? I, 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 well, again, as I'm simply saying, and here we are at the moment, uh, we have now got a situation where we don't have, obviously, a working executive. We now see uh, the British government appearing to um, undermine uh, its commitments to the Good Friday Agreement. And out of that, uh, clearly we seem to be making similar mistakes in, in, in that regard. So how do we strengthen civil society? Uh, based on your question, I would actually argue that we do need a proper uh, system of political governance. Um, and I think that that system of governance needs to be um, rooted um, uh, within a human rights framework. I think if we believe in democracy and we believe in creating a democracy, I think that all genuine democracies throughout the world uh, should be rooted within a human rights framework. And I think it'd be, you know, we need to construct that. I, I believe that you know, there, that construction was, to all intents and purposes, uh, in my view, contained and enshrined within the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, I think that the infrastructure is there. Um, the problem is, uh, to all intents and purposes, it just hasn't been uh, implemented and delivered. So I think that, you know, given the effort um, um, that went into um, bringing about um, all that was contained within the Good Friday Agreement, that if that was being implemented, um, I think it that would be one way of obviously strengthening civil society. Unfortunately, and I talked about it at the beginning, um, about the failure of governance uh, that gave rise to the conflict. Um, if we look at the situation where we are today, uh, we have a situation that um, if people had implemented uh, what was in uh, the Good Friday Agreement in terms of a Bill of Rights, about addressing the issues of inequality uh, in terms of um, economic investment, um, targeting uh, the most marginalised communities within our societies, um, be they within working class communities, be they loyalist, 
be the Republican, be the Nationalist, be, be uh, Unionist, I think that we could have actually uh, seen greater movement. I think it is uh, of great disappointment that the fact that built within that framework was also uh, a civic forum concept. Uh, and I actually think that, you know, and the first thing that our politicians did was actually deal with, uh, threw that out. Uh, I think that, you know, you have a situation now where you have uh, people saying, how do we actually create a more proactive civic society? So therefore, in that sort of situation, I think that, you know, if we had a proactive um, civic society, if we had um, an effective Bill of Rights, if we actually had policies that actually addressed, uh, addressed the issues of um, economic uh, disadvantage, social disadvantage, educational disadvantage, and ensured that was obviously applying right across the board, right across all those particular communities, then I think it, uh, at that stage, civic society would be strengthened. We would have a more cohesive society, and we could have went on and built and strengthened um, our peace. In terms of the structures about how civic society makes itself felt, would you want to see the civic forum reconstituted? I think what we need to do at the moment is that I think we need to create a social movement at the moment. Uh, I think that that social movement clearly should be demanding um, of our political elite that um, civic society has a role to play, a significant role to play in a modern democratic society, a society that uh, is based on the principles of equality and equity, always respective of who you are. And this is not about uh, the situation in terms of creating equality um, and equity uh, with the two main tribes here, i.e., from within nationalism and within unionism. We now live in a society which is much more diverse than that. Um, I think that we need to be creating a society where everyone within this particular society, all respect of A, of their political background, their sexual orientation, their ethnic background and so forth, we now live in a multicultural society. And I actually think that we need to reflect that uh, in terms of a wider sort of civic society. When people talk about civic society at the moment, they tend to talk about nationalism and then tend to talk about unionism. I love and work within a society which is now more diverse than that, and I think we need to look at it in that sort of context. Which touches upon your earlier comments about rights and people expecting the Good Friday Agreement to have delivered rights, but perhaps the difficulty is that there were interpretations of the Good Friday Agreement that were perhaps not spelt out. So, for example, people look to Irish language um, access uh, and use. Uh, they look to same-sex marriage and say, well, those are rights and come to that economic disadvantage you referred to, investment across the whole of Northern Ireland. And these were perhaps uh, assumptions that were made that the Good Friday Agreement would deliver, but they weren't spelt out. So... Are you implying that we need to go back and and agree a new fundamental agreement that modifies Good Friday Agreement? Well, again, what we were talking about when the Good Friday Agreement uh, came about 
was about to all intents and purposes social transformation. And people talk about social transformation. Um, I would view social transformation as something that needs to also look at the economic, cultural, educational, environmental needs of society. And I think that those things all are part and parcel of uh, social uh, transformation. I think of what we actually created after that particular uh, process because possibly given the, the lack of local sort of political um, involvement in the democratic process, clearly at that stage the focus went on, I feel like, the political uh, parties or the main political parties uh, and it didn't look at society in its whole. And in that sort of context, I think that we need to create a situation, how could I put it, that, that were more inclusive, um, that were more imaginative in terms of addressing what is now happening uh, in the real world in terms of the, the economy, what's happening in terms of the global economy, what's happening, the fact is that all the structures that we had in place at that particular time to all intents purposes was quite narrow. It looked at the particular needs of the nationalist community uh, and people within the Protestant community felt we're losing that or we give that to the nationalist community. I'm simply saying that uh, we need to look at the situation where we need to have policies in place that actually begin to address where people are at. And lots of people in this particular uh, society are being denied the opportunity to go into the world of work. A lot of people are being denied the access the opportunity in terms of further education opportunities. So therefore, I, and I think it, the economic agenda that that has been rolled out over the last 20-odd uh, years, in my view, is quite narrow. It, it is predicated on one economic model. I think it needs to be much broader than that. I think it, you know, it needs to, for example, uh, embrace what I would call the social economy, I believe that the social economy is part of creating a mixed and balanced economy here. And given the fact that quite a number of people in this particular society have been left behind and people have been looking after the people, been looking after the few instead of looking after the many, I think that, um, you know, the, the private sector will do certain things. But if you actually look at the moment where people have feel they've been left behind, it's in those communities that have suffered most as a result of the conflict. It tends to be in working class Protestant areas, also in working class uh, Catholic areas, where the conflict was fought out. Uh, that's where the highest levels of poverty exist. That's where the highest levels of economic activity take place. And to all intents and purposes, I would argue that our political elite have been obviously following an economic agenda it's not addressing that. So therefore, yes, I do believe uh, we need um, policies that reflect where people are at. And given that's where we are at the moment, how do we move towards a shared and in, uh, integrated society? Well, again, how do we move towards a shared um, and integrated society? I think it, the first thing that needs to be done, people need to go back to basics. They need to go back and ask themselves, why was a Good Friday Agreement brought about? Clearly people wanted an end 
to conflict. I think it's much more wider than that. Uh, I believe that a lot of people who obviously voted on this island for the Good Friday Agreement said, let's look at the reasons and the history that give rise to conflict. And we needed to create a framework that would create a situation where we had a, a society that was based on um, a shared society, where people's rights were respected, where there would be equality for all. And in that sort of situation, I still believe um, what we need uh, is a Bill of Rights that obviously looks at the particular uh, economic needs of people, the educational needs of people, uh, the social needs of people, and I think it, that is something that we need to build a modern society on. If we don't have that, we will always have people who are going to be left behind. And when people are left behind, and then when people within our political elite then decide that the politics of exclusion and marginalisation is the way forward, then I think that we will always have a particular problem of holding back building a modern, inclusive society that, in my view, which is based on equality, equity, greater economic democracy, and that the fact that we're creating a society which everybody that lives in this part of the world feel part of. At the moment, there's a sizable sections of our particular communities who feel that they're left outside of that agenda. It sounds as if there's an implication there that uh, the way that you achieve a better outcome in terms of shared uh, approach and in, uh, integration is by having an improved society, by having a better society with a growing economy, so that rather than fight, different communities fighting for their share of the, the, the cake, the cake gets larger so that everyone can get a better bit of it, if you like the analogy. Yes, what we're simply saying is that who could disagree with building a more socially just society, um, a society which actually looks at the needs of its entire society instead of looking after uh, the few. Clearly, look, we've seen um, the development over the last maybe 18 months of what is known as civic nationalism. Right? Civic nationalism was a project that was started by 100 people who are basically concerned at the fact that we've seen the British government getting into bed with one political party and people thought that was undermining the Good Friday Agreement. Now, out of that process of 100 people, that eventually grew to a 1,000 people signing that. It then had another very important spin-off, which we then seen the emergence of civic unionism. And they're now having a conversation about the impact of Brexit, the impact of austerity, the impact of partition. All those issues are being talked about. I also think that, that structure, and that obviously led it on to a major conference uh, a number of weeks back in Belfast where over 18 people showed up, or 1,800 people showed up. That's grand, and that's important. That actually shows that you can actually have a dialogue that 
is developed in a way which is non-threatening. I also think it's, it's got major weaknesses in it. The vast majority of people that would have actually showed up to the event in civic nationalism and also the people who are now engaging within civic unionism. There were very few from working class communities. You know, it's people who are obviously many people in the world of work, many people within the professions. But the big gap and all of that was those people who were living in marginalised housing estates. There was a big gap in terms of the people who were not in the room, people who would be opposed to the current sort of so-called peace process. I think it, you know, it was an important dialogue initiative which has been started. I think that needs to go further and that needs to engage the people who were not in the room. Um, and, and in that sort of context, I think it it's important that if we're serious about social transformation or we've seen many government policies coming out of it in terms of, um, for example, we have Fresh Start, we have programmes now which talks about community transit, uh, transition, you know, but they seem to be top down initiatives, not talking to the people who they really should be talking to. So, so how, my, how, how should working class communities be engaged in that process then? Well, again, is it, I think that there's ways and means um, through what I would call um, effective um, dialogue initiatives where we treat everybody within our particular society with respect. We don't demonise them, we don't marginalise them, we engage them. Um, and in that context, I would go back to the fact that we would have effective policies, which we don't have here at the moment, in terms of how do you demonstrate the local communities where you know you have levels of unemployment that is as pronounced today as it was 50 years ago, or where there is levels of poverty and, and, and deprivation, lack of social housing and so forth, and that the fact is that the jobs that is common... Um, are not reaching them. You know, we have a, a situation at the moment, there's people who are applying for jobs at the moment who may well have, you know, university degrees, some of them with two or three university degrees working in, in call centres. So where does that leave people who don't have university degrees um, or don't have academic sort of um, uh, abilities? They're not even getting a chance to go for those jobs. My view is that you need to have policies where you're creating locally placed initiatives, social economy initiatives, cooperatives and so forth, where people themselves see that they have a chance to be involved in the development, A, of their communities and then of wider society. But in terms of dialogue with working class communities, are you suggesting that's best done by outreach rather than expecting people to go to a big conference, for example? Yeah, again, as I know, you have to have, again, to all intents and purposes, what I would call a mixed and balanced approach. I think we have to find creative ways of actually doing that. So therefore, in that sort of situation, you know, how, how would I deal with it? It's like dealing with the past, which keeps coming back to haunt us. Mm. It really keeps coming back to haunt us. Um, I think that the, our political system, again, like, you know, what they've done with everything else, you know, and even in terms of, you know, everything becomes sectarianized, right? And they're not willing to address it whatsoever. So I think that we need to create that through community-based and formal structures, 
structures that give ownership to people who have who have really suffered, you know, and in, in, in terms of whether it's dealing with the past in terms of people who have been hurt, uh, who have suffered the horrors of that conflict, or people who have suffered the indignity of long-term unemployment, lack of education, lack of investment in their communities. These are, all, to me, all forms of, of violence. So therefore, you need to obviously find ways and means of a, a coming up with new systems of, of engagement. That. I think we can deal out creatively through creative arts, you know, uh, through different sort of approaches in terms of using different media um, tools to do that as well. I think we have to find ways to ensure that, that voice is given to those voices that have previously been denied or silenced or quite deliberately forgot about. So therefore, you know, if government tries to um, ignore the past, um, they themselves may have been part of the problem in the past, and we've seen examples of that in the last couple of weeks where there's, you know, where there's now a whole controversy about about the PSNI again. You know, the fact is that, is that you know, you have to find ways of actually, you know, letting people talk about the past. Uh, I would say that there's been the innovation of in giving people advice. I would cite an example, which has happened just here at Craig and Enterprises, where we felt that we had to give voice to women, the Unheard Voices program, which we're doing here, where people who, where people are talking about the past, they talk about the people who lost their lives. We wanted to talk about the people who had to carry on after those lives were lost. What was the impact on women? What was the impact on families? And we're simply that type of initiative brought people from right across the divide here to talk about the impact of violence. Now, that is dealing with the past. The vast majority of people who want to deal with the past clearly just want to know what happened, why it happened. They want to know the context and so forth. That's why I'm, I go back to the very first um, response to your question was that the fact is that we should not be making the mistakes of the past. The mistakes of the past came as a result of failure of political governance, failure of bringing in security measures that don't work. So therefore, in that sort of situation, we need to find ways of creating new new routes of activity uh, and ways of doing things. And that's what I would simply say is one way of means of doing it. And clearly, if dealing with the past is one area which we have to be careful of because of the, the tensions around it, the other is how we have the conversation about the future constitutional uh, situation in Ireland. I mean, what's, how do you think we have that conversation without inflaming the situation? Today? Well, as, as I've already said, I think that that, that is really process has begun through civic nationalism, civic unionism. There's a bit taking place there at the moment which is quite interesting. I find the reason that debate is taking place because our political elite, and in that context, they've got themselves under a corner, and now all of a sudden they're simply saying, how can civic society help us? And civic society is also frustrated at the fact that uh, things seem to be going backwards, right? So therefore they began the debate themselves, so they have obviously began to raise their voice. 
Um, I think it, that's an important development. Uh, they're, they're doing that in a non-threatening way. That has given rise, as I've already said, to a debate beginning within civic unionism. But I want to talk about civil society and the satirity. I think that we need to widen that out. And I would like people who have not gone into those rooms, right, also to be part in that engagement. And I think that that is possible. I think that there is initiatives that are taking place, you know, what I would call through quiet diplomacy behind the scenes. But again, people are not, you know, encouraged to do that. If they do that, at times then they get criticised by the political elite. I think that they're making a mistake. I think, you know, if you begin a process where people feel that they're part of that dialogue, part of that, and their voice has been heard, um, then again, people tend to respond positively. So that, I think it, you know, that is one way of, of actually dealing with it. You know, there is initiatives out there at the moment. You know, and I, I think if, if we could create a social movement here, which basically saying we need to hear all those voices. And to all intents and purposes, I believe that's beginning to happen. Yes, I talk about civic nationalism, I talk about that. But we also have a growing movement of young people there simply saying, you know, we are gay, we want to be treated as equals. That movement is taking place not only in the North, and it's already taken place and had a lot working with that uh, within the south of Ireland. That movement is taking place all over the world, uh, so therefore I think we need to be engaged in all those progressive movements um, around us, simply saying your voice is there. And that's where I go back to if we're going to build um, a proactive, cohesive society here, then again, it has to be rooted within a human rights framework. You know, a human rights framework doesn't threaten anyone, in my view. You know, it's about saying everybody's rights is equal and should be protected. Uh, and I think it, and some people may think that is a, an idealistic um, way of putting it, but I think that if, if we built a society here, given the pain of what we've gone through, given all the, all the arguments which we all know about, and we could create a society here that is actually based within a human rights framework, then I think it, we can move this place forward. Unfortunately, maybe they, uh, uh, you know, we have a situation is that, you know, clearly that process at the moment has been stalled because of Brexit, you know. And it's not the people in Ireland, it's not the people in the north of Ireland who to blame for that, you know. Um, you know, clearly people have made a decision uh, within Britain that they want to leave the European Union. That has serious consequences for our peace process. I think it has got serious consequences for our rights-based society. Um, I think that these things need to be looked at. Um, and the only way we can stop that or the thing well, is to, in my view, is to, is to create a proactive uh, social movement which is saying an inclusive civil society 
is simply saying, we want change. And that's when we will obviously move this particular society forward. Colin McFeely, thank you very much indeed. Okay, Colin McFeely there. Um, Effective dialogue initiatives, Paul, it's something that struck me from what, what Colin was saying has been really strong. Absolutely. It's an interesting phrase as well. Mm. I mean, you know, because we've traditionally these conversations been talking about uh, the civic forum, civic society um, and also citizens assemblies. Uh, we'd been talking about the models. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Whereas, you know, what Connor was saying is what's important is bottom up dialogue. Mm. You know, yes, top down, but also you have to have bottom up structures where people are able to say what they demand, what they need, what they want. Yeah. And as you, you might expect as well. Brexit came up yet again. Yeah, a lot of people are unhappy either about the outcome of Brexit or at the very least about the lack of proper conversations before we had the Brexit vote. And mm. yes, this came through once again, you know, because actually when you talk to the community sector across Northern Ireland, there are real concerns about Brexit in terms of, you know, let's learn from that in terms of any future constitutional conversations, yeah. but also that we have to mend relationships that have been damaged by what's already happened in terms of Brexit. Okay. Well, thank you, Paul. Thanks for the interview with Connell and thanks uh, to Connell for taking part. Um, that's it for this episode of the Forward Together podcast. Thanks to Emer Doherty and Jacqueline McKay for production support. Uh, keep an eye out for future episodes and thank you for listening. <laughs>